morning. Thank you, Nancy, for that lead-in song. That's very appropriate. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 8. Counting our blessings is what I'm going to talk about this morning. Uh, I read somewhere recently that Romans chapter 8 is one of the best-loved chapters in the Bible. And uh, after studying it in the last few weeks, I, I tend to agree. This is a, this is a great chapter. Uh, War, Warren Wearsby, years ago, uh, he used to speak on Back to the Bible broadcast, and he years ago said that uh, he called it the, uh, the Christian's Declaration of Freedom. And David Jeremiah also called it the greatest chapter in the Bible. He dealt with this just a few weeks ago, which was kind of a coincidence. Um, this chapter gives us many reasons for a positive attitude, and we all need that, don't we? With everything that's going on in our world today, we easily get depressed, we get anxious, we get fearful, we sometimes are discouraged, and also spiritual struggles are common to all of us, right? As Paul in the previous chapter, just the one before, chapter 7 of Romans, he declares, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And so the inward, the inward struggle, the struggle with sin, was as real for Paul as it is for us. But the mood changes drastically when we come to Romans chapter 8. First, a little background as to why I chose to use Romans 8. I don't know if I've shared this before. You've got to forgive me. My memory isn't as good as it used to be, so... Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll share a personal story that I've probably told you before, but, so you can forgive me for that. But anyway, as a little background to why I chose Romans chapter 8 uh, for a study this morning. Uh, several years ago, uh, Susie and I were staying with our grandkids while their mom and dad were on a holiday in Florida. There was a certain program that the family liked to listen to every weekend on, on TV, and uh, they enjoyed the speaker's messages, and so our granddaughter, uh, she was age 11 at the time, she decided to write down the main points of the speaker's message so that she could tell mom and dad about it when they returned home from their holiday in Florida. 11-year-old girl. I'm proud of my grandkids, by the way. We should be, shouldn't we? Anyway, she was doing this, and I was quite impressed with what that young girl was doing, and so I asked her after she had finished, I said, would you give me a copy of what you've written? And I filed it away. I got lots of paper at home, way too much. I should be burning some of it. But uh, I filed it away, and a few weeks ago, when I was thinking about a message, I, I found this paper, and I decided to use that for a message this morning. So now you know the rest of the story. And as I said before already, uh, God seemed to confirm my choice of a text when I turned on the TV to listen to David Jeremiah, and sure enough, he was speaking on Romans chapter 8. So he gave me some ideas as well. I think the speaker at that time when, uh, when my granddaughter was taking notes uh, was Craig Gressel. I hope I have the, the name right because I, I want to give credit where credit is due because he gave me a lot of good ideas. And uh, he entitled his message, Eight Reasons for a Positive Attitude, when he spoke on Romans chapter 8. 
eight reasons for a positive attitude. I decided to change it up a little bit and I did, and rather discuss nine, and I'm going to call them blessings instead of reasons, because they really are. There could be even more than that, but I'll let you study uh, Romans 8 on your own, because if I went to more than nine of them, nine uh, blessings, uh, we might be here too long this morning. So here we go. Number, number one blessing First verse, it's part of our call to worship. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, I think we all know what that means. Condemnation is a judicial term, really. A term meaning a guilty verdict. A a criminal might be condemned to a prison term or even to death. Condemnation, not a very encouraging word. Judicial term meaning a guilty verdict. And after the agonizing struggle of chapter seven that I referred to earlier uh, that Paul had, what a glorious reassurance there is in the opening words of chapter eight here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no rejection by God. I decided years ago, and I think I've shared this before too, that Romans 8 verse 1 is to be on my tombstone. I like that. Imagine you were on death row, and after all, all the evidence and the arguments have been presented, the judge finally gives his verdict. There's silence in the courtroom. You're waiting for your verdict. And then he says, not guilty. Let him go free. That is what you hear. Not guilty. Let him go free. What a joy, what a relief. The blessing of forgiveness. David Jeremiah tells the story of a, of a uh, where years ago, uh, that's many years ago now, uh, it's, it uh, involves Abraham Lincoln. President Abraham Lincoln of the U.S. many years ago. I don't know what years he was president. doesn't matter, but anyway, he attended a slave auction. Maybe some of you have heard this story. This was new to me. And a young slave girl was put up for auction, and Lincoln bought her. And she was so angry with Lincoln because she figured, now I have to be his slave. And she hated him till he went over and he told her this, I bought you that I could set you free. I bought you that I could set you free. Imagine that. And she couldn't believe, she couldn't believe what she was hearing. And this is what she said to President Lincoln. Then I want to stay with you. Isn't that our story? We have been bought with a price. We have been set free. We are no longer slaves. The blessing of forgiveness, no longer a slave to sin, Psalm 32, 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here David expresses the joy of forgiveness. In Adam we were condemned. In Christ there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. And the reason there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because Jesus has taken our condemnation upon himself at the cross. Condemnation then is, we might say, the opposite of justification. And no condemnation is just the beginning. The second blessing, life and peace. I'll be skipping, I'll be just picking verses. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, don't worry about that. But I'll just be picking verses as I go. Verse 6, I'll read that for you. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. The spirit, I think, is mentioned about 19 times in this chapter. So the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Following Jesus brings life and brings peace. Those who have trusted Christ enjoy peace with God. We read, there is no peace for the wicked, Isaiah says. The unbeliever has no lasting peace because of the effects of sin and because of the prospect of punishment. Vernon McGee writes that peace means the experience of, of tranquility and well-being regarding the present and the future, and how you and I need that, right? One writer put it this way, to be discouraged is unbelief. We are not to be discouraged. We have reason to be encouraged. And David Jeremiah, regarding world events, he says, I refuse to be discouraged, and so should you. And he's right. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace, the opposite of death and misery. The third reason, we'll skip to verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as, son, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is now our position. We have been adopted not to be a slave, but to be a son, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Ab uh, adopted means chosen. Chosen. A little girl who's, who'd been adopted put it this way, I grew in my mommy's heart, not in her tummy. Adopted to be a son, to be a daughter, to be a child. And by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And this is a very familiar term, or an intimate term, I should say. Uh, we, we, uh, our kids probably call, have called us, when they were younger, they called us Daddy or Mommy. And this is, this is really what the word is. Abba, Father is kind of like a little kid calling his dad, Daddy intimacy between a child of God and his heavenly father. Fearless, unrestricted intimacy. God has not only saved us from sin, but he has adopted us into his family. 
He releases us from our former state of slavery and he adopts us as his children, sonship, with all its rights and privileges. Excuse me. If I can share another personal story, the subject of adoption is very personal to me. Susie and I have two adopted grandchildren, a grandson and a granddaughter. I remember several years ago, when she was just a young girl, our adopted granddaughter gave her mom, our daughter, a Mother's Day card, and in which she added the words, thank you for adopting me. Excuse me. Can you imagine what that did to our daughter? Thank you for adopting me. And that same grand granddaughter had a poster above her bed, in her bedroom, that read, I am a princess. My father is the king of kings. Have you ever thanked God? Have you ever thought about that? About thanking God for adopting you? That is exactly what he has done. My father is the king of kings. The fourth blessing, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that awaits us. Notice Paul's opinion of his sufferings, not worthy to be, to be compared to the future glory that awaits us. I think we need to view present troubles from an eternal perspective. So often the troubles and the ills and the goings on in our world get us all depressed. Future victory is greater than my present pain. And Richard DeHaan years ago wrote, the road from earth to heaven is never easy. Every believer faces opposition, but we know that God will help us to remain true to our faith, to our faith in him, through whatever difficult times we must face. Nothing we suffer, however, can compare to the great price that Jesus paid to save us. Paul lived with a physical ailment. He had experienced persecution. He had experienced imprisonment. He had experienced beatings, etc., etc. And so his words here in verse 18 should be a source of great encouragement to every believer. Glory awaits us. We have a living hope. Life is not a dead-end street. Let's focus on our future glory rather than on our present sufferings. Number five, then, another blessing, verse 26. I'll just read the first part of it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. The Spirit helps our weakness. Have you ever felt weak? I don't mean physically. We've all had that, too. But do you ever feel spiritually weak? Let's look at the first part of this verse. The Spirit also helps our weakness. We're not left to our own resources, is what it says. 
We're not left to our own resource to cope with problems in our lives. The Lord never abandons us, regardless of the intensity of our struggle. The Lord knows we are weak and totally dependent on him. Sometimes we have difficulty admitting that we are weak, that we need help. Our knowledge is limited. God's is unlimited. His knowledge is complete. His knowledge is perfect. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. There's that word, helper. We have help. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the very presence of God within us and within all believers. By faith, we can appropriate his help and his power. Someone has put it this way, in the Old Testament, God the Father was for his people. In the New Testament, God the Son was with his people. He took on bodily form form, and he walked this earth. So he was with his people. And now in the present time, God the Spirit is in his people. It doesn't get any closer than that. That's the blessing. The second part of verse 26 For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit prays for you. The Holy Spirit prays for me. That's quite a thought. Have you ever told people, I'll pray for you? Or have you ever had people tell you, I'm praying for you? I trust you're praying for me right now. And if I can give you another prayer request, I have to speak in Glenborough again on the 18th of September, so I'd really appreciate your prayers again. But yes, the Holy Spirit prays for us. That that is quite a thought. I remember a personal experience many years ago when Peter Harms was, was our lead pastor here. And we were going, as a church, we were going through a rather tough time. There was a lot of tension and broken relationships and all kinds of things were going on. I don't have to remind you of that. But it was my turn to speak that Sunday. And uh, I, was, I was terribly nervous. I thought I would lose my voice. I thought I'd burst into tears up here. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. Uh, I just did not feel, but it was my turn to speak. And I came, I came to church and I came to the back of the church and... I, I bumped into Peter Harm, Mr. Harms, and I said to him, I said, I so wish it was your turn to speak this morning. I, I just don't know if I can handle this. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. And he said, no. He said, this is the way it's supposed to be. He said, you go speak and I'll pray. I'll never forget that. I think of it so often because I got up here, my voice never cracked once. I almost felt relaxed, believe it or not. I I knew that God was answering Mr. Harms' prayer. And here we have the Holy Spirit praying for us, interceding for the saints. Last part of verse 26 that I read, and then verse 34 again. 
intercedes for us. Even though we feel inadequate, we feel confused about how to pray and what to pray, the Holy Spirit involves himself in our prayers. Here's a cute story. I don't know where I got this, but many years ago, a missionary she was involved, who was involved in Bible translation in a third world country and, and uh, Bible translation and literacy, she told about a young boy, uh, a member of an illiterate tribe, who had just learned the alphabet of his language. And one morning the boy was found sitting alone on a hillside, his hands clasped, his eyes closed, and he was repeating the letters of the alphabet that he had just learned a while ago. He was repeating the alphabet over and over in his language. And as the missionary came near and, he and heard what he was doing, she asked the boy, why are you repeating the alphabet? And he said, I am praying. But why are you repeating the alphabet? And the boy's answer, I wanted to pray, but I didn't know how. And so I said the letters of the alphabet, knowing that God would put them into words for me. The Holy Spirit prays for us. Cute story, true story. Your daily problems, my daily problems, are no longer yours alone or mine alone. Even when I don't know the right words to pray, the Holy Spirit prays with and for me, and God answers. That's amazing. Verse 28, number 7. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's the first verse of our scripture reading this morning. We know. We don't just feel or think. We know. God works in all things, not just isolated incidents, and always, always for our good. And that includes life's trials as well. What does this verse really teach us? I believe it informs us the Lord uses everything, everything that enters our lives to work together for our best interests. It's hard to understand, hard to believe sometimes, but that is what the scriptures teach us everything. I believe it informs us the Lord uses everything for our best interests. He is the potter, his word says, his, his, his word tells us, and we are the clay. He wants to form us into vessels of grace and of beauty, and he has every right to do that. And let's remember, it's all for our ultimate good. However, there is a qualification here for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. The last part of verse 28. You have to, I have to, be in a relationship with God in order that for this promise to apply to me.
Number eight, verse 31. What then shall we say to, those, to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? What shall we say? David Jeremiah says, what shall I say? This is so wonderful, I have nothing to add. This is amazing. The, the Christian's greatest comfort. Psalm 118.6, we read, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is in my corner. What a wonderful truth that is. And what a deep sense of security that should give us as believers. Humanism says God helps those who help themselves. Christianity says God helps those who turn to him for help. Wouldn't it be great if we could begin each new day realizing that God is for us? As we read in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Number nine, my final point, verse 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am convinced. I know. I am persuaded. This is the expression of deep spirit-produced inner assurance. This is the assurance that you should have, that I should have. These verses contain one of the most comforting promises in all of Scripture. If we believe these overwhelming assurances, we will not be afraid. We may be attacked from inside and out. We may experience highs and lows of success and failure. And through it all, we may be certain of one thing. God loves us. All that Christ won for us at the cross and in the vacated tomb is ours. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. This is what makes a no-so Christian in, instead of a hope-so Christian. Paul's persuasion was founded on truth, truth that gives us as believers a deep sense of spiritual security. We have this same assurance given in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No separation. And so to sum up, we started this chapter of Romans with verse 1, no condemnation. And now we conclude verses 38 and 39 with no separation. And in between, as Vernon McGee comments, all things work together for good.
It doesn't get any better than that. It just doesn't. No condemnation, no separation. I trust you've been encouraged this morning. These verses have really encouraged me, and I hope it's done the same for you as we've considered these amazing truths, these amazing blessings. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you this morning for this portion of scripture that you have left for us and the encouragement that it is. Father, the blessing that it is. We have been sanctified. We have been set apart. We have been adopted into your forever family. We have all the blessings given to us. We have your spirit as our helper. Nothing can separate us from your love. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you that we can go from this place encouraged. Help us to live out these truths, to trust in your word, to make it our own, and to spread it to others who need this encouragement as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.